Welcome to Cato Audio for January 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Judge Alex Kaczynski asks some serious questions about criminal justice. Matt Ridley talks about the evolution of everything. George Tavlis discusses monetary policy. And law professor Jonathan Turley discusses what we lose by concentrating power in federal agencies. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. As a change of pace for this month's Cato Roundtable, we bring you a segment from Libertarianism.org's Free Thoughts podcast. Hosts Aaron Powell and Trevor Burris talk with Fleming Rose, author of the recent Cato book, The Tyranny of Silence. There's a paperback edition of The Tyranny of Silence coming out next year, and it's got a new chapter on the Charlie Hebdo killings. And in that chapter, you mention a rather chilling fact that your name appears on al-Qaeda's most wanted list of individuals guilty of offending Muhammad. Mm-hmm. So maybe start by just the story of how you ended up on such a list. <laughs> well, um, I ended up on that list uh, after being responsible for the publication of 12 cartoons um, depicting the Prophet Muhammad in the fall of 2005. They were published in... They were published in uh, Jyllandsposten, uh, the paper where I work. Um, I'm soon leaving uh, my post to become a full-time free speech advocate, writer, speaker, and uh, debater. Uh, you know, I mean, that list was created, I think, a while ago. In fact, I had forgotten about it, and I also think that the Danish police had forgotten about it for a while, but it refer- it resurfaced after the um, the attack on on, uh, on Charlie Hebdo. There were 11 people on that list, uh, three Danes among them, two of my colleagues at the paper and I, and uh, one French, uh, uh, Stephanie Charbonnier, Sharp, uh, the editor-in-chief, uh, who was killed, and they crossed out his name on that you know, like a most wanted list uh, in, uh, in, in the U.S. and said, you know, now there are only 10 people left. And, and that list was, um, was uh, behind an imam in Yemen from al-Qaeda or the Islamic State who uh, praised the killings in uh, Paris and said, you know, we help these guys to uh, commit this uh, great act. Uh, and, and then the list of the, um, the, t- the 10 people uh, who are still in that list was um, in the background. And in fact, at the time I was was asked by Danish TV to to come on the air to to comment on it. And I said, no, thank you. (laughs) I mean, what what am I supposed to say? Uh, And I, you know, they they wanted to play it. And I said, well, every every time you uh, air that uh, list, uh, you will just... um, increase the threat uh, against me. Uh, it's up to you. I'm not uh, giving you any, any advice, but I'm not going to be in the studio uh, commenting on, uh, on, on that list. So that's, uh, that's the background. When you published the cartoons, did you expect this? No, of course not. Nobody did. Even, even experts on Islam in Denmark 
uh, a, f- a well-known uh, Danish expert on Islam who was very critical of the publication of the cartoon said in the fall of 2005, this is never going to be a big international issue. Two months later, everything exploded uh, in, uh, in the Middle East. It was... I mean, I didn't even know, you know, how sensitive uh, uh, depictions of uh, the Prophet Muhammad uh, is to many Muslims. Um, but uh, there's some way to go from that to start killing people and and uh, committing terrorist attacks and, and things like that. And I, I think I think it was a coincidence of many factors that you have you have uh, interests of authoritarian regimes in the Islamic world coinciding with the interest of the imams in Denmark who wanted to take this case to the international uh, Muslim public opinion and to turn it against Denmark and the newspaper. And and unfortunately, um, uh, it was very, you know, opportune for some of these regimes in the Middle East, especially uh, the Mubarak government in Egypt, the Fatah government in the um, in the Palestinian territories, the Pakistani government, uh, imams in Saudi Arabia, to exploit this issue for their own ends. Um, so it was not, you know, it was it was not written somewhere by you know that 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 this case was determined from the outset to become a big international um, uh, controversy. Can you talk a little bit about why you published them at that time? What was the discussion? So you knew there, you were doing something a little provocative, uh, <laughs> or at least a lot well, provocative. Yeah, I, I do that every day as an editor, <laughs> so, uh, and and uh, most of it goes unnoticed. Uh, I mean, that's the job of a newspaper editor and get try to challenge your audience. Um, uh, no, but uh, of course the cartoons didn't come out of the blue. Um, in the uh, in the fall of two thousand five, well early fall, August, beginning of September, there was a big news story in the Danish press about a children's book um, about the life of the Prophet Muhammad. And the writer said, you know, I wrote this book, but I cannot find an illustrator. Uh, And I have offered the job to several illustrators, and they said, no, thank you, because they were afraid. And the one who finally said yes insisted on anonymity due to fear for his life. Um, and um, he later admitted, uh, the illustrator, that that in fact was the case, that he was afraid. And this was a front page news story in, uh, in, in, in Denmark. And, and at the time, you know, we did the usual reporting. We called the Association of uh, Painters, the Association of Illustrators, the Association of Writers uh, to ask, you know, this is a self-censorship. Uh, what do you think about this? Uh, is it a good thing, a bad thing? Uh, and that was the first round of the coverage of this story. And then we had a follow-up uh, discussion, you know, can we do anything more on this story? And, uh, and, and somebody came up with, uh, with a proposal, why don't we ask um, illustrators in Denmark to uh, draw the profit so we can find out if there is self-censorship um, or not? So, so uh, I would say, you know, back then, back then, I was trying to pose a challenge that would answer two questions. One was, is there still censorship when it comes to Islam? Are people in cultural life uh, in Denmark and uh, probably Western Europe uh, making a difference 
when it comes to Islam? Um, do they treat Islam in a different way than they treat Christianity, uh, Judaism, uh, Hinduism, uh, and also non-religious um, ideas? Uh, and if uh, there is self-censorship, is that self-censorship just you know, a product of uh, people's fantasy? Uh, is it something that they make up? Uh, they just think that something might happen? Or is this self-censorship based in real fear? Um, and 10 years later, uh, we have to admit that the answer to both questions is yes. There is self-censorship, and the self-censorship is based in real fear because people have been killed. And I have to live with security in Denmark, uh, you know, just for being the editor uh, behind this uh, initiative. A lot of people have responded to the publication of these cartoons and similar occurrences with saying first, you know, you should have known what would happen or at least had an idea that this was more dangerous and not a particularly good idea. But also that even if – and we can all admit – shooting people because they published cartoons is not acceptable. Um, but even with that, there's still something morally wrong with publishing things that you know are going to be profoundly offensive to a subset of people that mm. – you know, I mean obviously someone – in order to kill because you were offended, you have to have been offended fairly deeply. Mm-hmm. Well, that's like uh, John Carrier who said there is a difference between the attack on Charlie Hebdo and the one uh, November 13th in, in Paris, and I don't think so. I mean, Charlie Hebdo, yes, uh, people were offended by some of their cartoons, but they were perfectly well in the limits of uh, French law uh, within French tradition, and they did not take exception with Islam. They offend all religions and and uh, politicians. So uh, I think that is a flawed argument, um, and it also it is also a rationalization after the fact. In fact, I didn't know, we didn't know how, you know, offensive this was for too many Muslims. Um, but I also think it was exploited. Yes, I mean, every time I turn on my TV, I'm offended. I'm deeply offended by a lot of what I see, reality TV and uh, Donald Trump or whatever it is. Uh, it's very offensive. But, uh, you know, I don't, I don't try to, um, to, to get these um, shows banned. And I don't threaten to uh, kill people if uh, they appear on these shows. And that's a big difference. I mean, uh, the... the uh, The price you have to pay for living in a liberal democracy and enjoying all the benefits of it is that from time to time you may be offended by what other people say. And uh, I didn't, you know, that's one of the reasons why I, I think the way I do about these issues because I didn't know about all the taboos within Islam uh, when it comes to depicting uh, the prophet. I think now a lot of people know, <laughs> but. There, there are 10,000 religions in the world, 10,000 religions. Am I obliged to know every taboo of every religion in the world and obey it, not to offend what is sensitive to people? I think it's, uh, it's impossible for an individual to, to know everything. And, and, it, and then it boils down to you're go only going to, 
take you know into consideration the taboos that uh, that makes it difficult for you because people react in a violent and threatening way that's very undemocratic uh, it's uh, it's um, it's you know the assassin's veto as uh, Timothy Gardner put it in uh, in in the New York Review of Books uh, and I, I think that's 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 not fair um, and um, and I also think if you go back to to uh, to the cartoons that in fact many people you know never saw maybe except for one but there were twelve cartoons and if you look at them and you compare them to other religious satire in Denmark and Western Europe they are very innocent uh, in 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 many ways they do not in any way transgress you know the limits for what we usually do when it comes to religious satire so 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 i would make the point that that by publishing those cartoons we were not asking more of muslims we were not asking less but we were asking exactly the same of muslims as we do of any other group uh, religious non-religious and in that lies a fact of recognition of the muslim community as an integrated part of our society and that's why I, from time to time, maybe a little bit provocatively, you know, call the publication of the cartoons an integration project, uh, because we integrated the Muslim community into uh, the tradition of religious satire uh, of Denmark that has existed for you know several centuries. Um, uh, no, I think f first it was perfectly within the limits of the way we usually do this, and. And in a multicultural, multi-ethnic, and multi-religious society, it is impossible to know the sensitivities of any of, of of every group and individual. And if you want to be consistent in applying, you know, the principle "do not offend," it will lead to the title of my book, "A Tyranny of Silence." It's notable that you published cartoons, and that elicited this violent reaction, and it elicited the condemnation of a lot of people who didn't think that violence was the right answer. And then the Charlie Hebdo was about cartoons and it feels like there's a – there's this divide between maybe we think that humor and cartoons are a lesser form of speech. You know, they're the kind of thing like you just shouldn't do that. But, you know, we don't see – well, first off, we don't see violence against say the publishers of Christopher Hitchens books or Richard Dawkins books who are – far more condescending towards Islam than these cartoons were. Um, and so we don't see violence against that, but we also don't see the kind of public like, oh, you shouldn't be doing this and it's, you know, you kind of deserved what you got attitude. So is it – is there something about satire or humor that makes it an easier – I mean obviously part of it is the cartoons are pictures and so if you can't read the language, then you can still see the offense in those. But you're not going to pick up a book. Mm -hmm. um, but is there something more to it than that, that it's about cartoons and not about prose? No, I think you are getting at, you know, what I intended to say, that it's uh, it's the power of images. Uh, and that's, you know, I was, I was surprised about, you know, the strong reaction to the cartoon. So I, I, I started studying, uh, you know, the theory of images, uh, and I found out that uh, that is also you, you, originally in the, in the Bible. You also had an, a, a ban 
on images of God. Um, you know, images are powerful in the sense that they are open for interpretation. And you had the iconoclasts also, you know, that destroyed images. Uh, and, and you can read into them, you know, almost whatever you, you want. And they get a life of their own. Um, because there was also a discussion you know, about how, how should we in, interpret the cartoon of the prophet with a bomb in his turban. And some people say, well, this says that the prophet is a terrorist. This says that all Muslims are terrorists. While I believe that it was basically saying some people are committing violence in the name of the prophet. And that's a fact. I mean, we know, uh, but 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 you have all these different interpretations. Uh, so so I think it has to do with the power of images, but it has also to do with um, with with the lack of a tradition of religious satire when it comes to Islam, at least dealing with the prophet. Um, uh, we 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 take it for granted now in the West. Uh, because our tradition of religious satire and criticism of religion is part and parcel of our tradition of uh, freedom and of our ability to uh, build competitive societies. But you can challenge authority and ask critical questions. Do you, do you think that possibly allowing religious satire can help strengthen religion in some way or, or, or absolutely in, yes. because people take it as it would say yeah, we, we, we have just forgotten because some people say to me well your argument about uh, defending uh, British satire is very abstract uh, you know we what what we, what we need is to fight for um, the right to scientific inquiry and things like that uh, we, we just forgotten how how important a role religious satire played in in this struggle for freedom in uh, in in the West, and you can see it if you look at the Muslim world. Well, it's striking how much it's not just. I mean, so the Muslims are upset and are offended by this, but even but many Westerners seem to be maybe increasingly opposed to free speech, and there it certainly isn't religious. Um, it's – I mean many of them, especially like in American college campuses, religion is not that dominant. But there's this notion that you know, there are minorities, historically oppressed people who are harmed by saying things that might offend them or challenging their views um, and, and that maybe we shouldn't have that absolute freedom, that we're, you know, we're abusing it and it's OK to scale it back. Um, so outside of the Muslim world, this seems to be a, a move back in the other direction, that we learned our lessons from the Western religions, but now we seem to be forgetting them. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, there's nothing new in this, but I, I think it's, it's about identity politics, that, um, that, that we live in a, you know, in a globalized world. We are exposed to a lot of information. It's very difficult to answer questions like, who am I? Um, it's not that easy. Uh, um, so, so, so it's it's the challenge of modernity and post-modernity that you don't have a fixed, you know, you're, you're not born into a family that very early determined you're going to be this and that. You have to invent yourself, and I think that's great because with that comes freedom of choice. You can do whatever you want. 
but it's also a challenge in the way that uh, it makes it difficult for many people to answer the question, who am I? Um, it, 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 it means that more and more people want to have an, you know, an identity and protect that identity against criticism. So you have this tribalization or ghettoization of society where we are more focused on what makes us different from one another than what we share as human beings. And in fact, we share far more than uh, than divides us. Uh, I mean, we have more the same genes. Yeah, we have the same capabilities. Uh, um, so I, I think I think you know when we have this discussion, we sh we should try to focus uh, what we share as human beings, uh, and not uh, and not try to pretend that if you are a different color or or from a different part of the world, that you are just so different that. Uh, it's unable to make any comparisons with uh, human beings uh, in other places of the world. For a more in-depth discussion about the fight for freedom of speech worldwide, you can get a copy of Fleming Rose's new Cato book, The Tyranny of Silence, available at Cato.org. People misunderstand how the framers of our Constitution actually viewed separation of powers, and that misunderstanding has contributed to concentrating power in federal agencies. Jonathan Turley is a professor of public interest law at George Washington University Law School. He spoke at a Cato Institute City Seminar in New York in November. A programming note, Turley's comments represent only his own views and not those of the U.S. House of Representatives which he represents in a case involving the Affordable Care Act. Presidents have been usurping power, particularly from the legislative branch, uh, for decades. And we've had this rise of the Uber presidency uh, that is throwing off that balance. We've also had the creation of what can be called a fourth branch, uh, the rise of federal agencies that have become independent even of the presidency. Uh, you have in the United States uh, the rise of something that's coming close to an English ministry system, uh, something we long rejected, these ideas of these, these agencies that are sort of self-perpetuating. Uh, and the impact of that is just extraordinary. I mean, today, um, you are 10 times more likely to be adjudicated in an administrative proceeding than you are in a real court of law. Uh, there is roughly 100,000 adjudications in the federal system each year. There's a million done by agencies. 90% uh, of the legal influences, uh, rules that govern your life are coming from agencies, not direct legislation. And these agencies are insulated in a way that really challenges the basic representative de democratic values that the framers uh, believed in. And that change, unfortunately, is welcomed by many. A lot of my colleagues identify with uh, agencies. They're a lot like us. They're people that are sort of wonky, people that go to work uh, um, after getting PhDs, uh, and we tend to associate ourselves with them uh, without considering the impact of a democracy and having a fourth branch in a tripartite system. And in that sense, we are getting closer, I think, to the English model. It was, it was fascinating. I had the honor recently of uh, speaking at the 800th anniversary of uh, the Magna Carta in London. And um, I, the Lord Justice that preceded me um, gave some wonderful remarks, uh, and then we answered some questions. 
And uh, his response to every other question it was, well, the ministries handle that. You know, the ministries handle that. And in England, they're entirely comfortable with the fact that they have ministries that are largely insulated from the prime minister. They continue largely unchanged. Uh, and they can actually stand up to, to prime ministers uh, in fighting for this type of problem. But this idea that this is a ministry problem, not one of our problems, really came out in his uh, remarks uh, um, very strongly. So why is it that this trend is so dangerous and um, dysfunctional? Um, the reason is that we have a system that's designed to protect liberty. A lot of people misunderstand the separation of powers uh, as a protection somehow of the institutional powers of the three branches. That's not how the framers refer to it. The framers view the separation of power, and by the way, federalism, as protections of liberty. Why? Because the great scourge that the framers were trying to prevent was the concentration of power. They viewed the concentration of power as the root of all evil, that they needed to create a system that could guarantee that uh, these powers would never become concentrated in any one person or any one system. And Madison particularly believed in that. He believed that ambition could combat ambition. And I'm someone that it's very hard to get me to say that Madison was wrong about anything. Uh, but on this one, unfortunately, our contemporary politicians may have proved him wrong. One of the most uh, unnerving uh, moments for me came with the State of the Union a couple of years ago when President Obama went in front of Congress and said that he was tired of Congress not doing anything on immigration, not doing anything on health care, not doing anything on any of his proposals, and that he would go it alone, uh, that uh, he had decided that he would act unilaterally. Now, to my amazement, what followed was rapturous applause by half of the body. And I sat there in just disbelief, because you had these members who gave him a standing ovation to their own functional non-entity status. That is, they were, they were rapturous in applauding, yes, please make us a non-entity. Uh, please circumvent us. And at that point, I really wondered, you know, maybe James Madison was wrong. Uh, and unfortunately, much of what Madison tried to do was based on his idea of human nature. And, and so did Montesquieu. Uh, in his writings, when talking about separation of powers, uh, that he believed that what was unstable about systems were, was the creation of factions, and that factions were natural, um, uh, that, they, that they're part of being a human being. Um, this is a distinction that we have with the French. People come up to me and say, I love reading the U.S. Constitution. You know they've never read the Constitution. Uh, because the Constitution, American Constitution reads like a tax code. It's like, it was written by this wonky dweeb. I mean, it, it, Madison, you know, had this squeaky little voice. He was about that tall. You know, if he was alive today, he'd be inventing a dot-com in a garage. I mean, he was really, he was like the dweebest of dweebs, you know. And, um, and he didn't write that constitution to really inspire much. You read French constitutions, and they're plural because they fail so often. Uh, is, you read those, and the French know how to write a constitution. You want to read something beautiful, read, pick any a French constitution. Why are they beautiful? It's because they talk about 
all of the wonderful things about being human. And, you know, they're written. I tell my students all the time uh, that they're written what you, you remember those commercials, those um, Bud Light, I love you, man, uh, commercials? Um, they were written at that Bud Light, I love you, man moment, right? The French would overthrow the previous government. They would have what the French excel at, which is a party. And... <laughs> And they would write these constitutions at this I love you man moment. And the constitution would be filled with all the reasons we love each other. And then the next morning, um, it would wear off. And you would decide, you know what? I really don't like this guy that much. Um, and so these constitutions would fail precisely because they emphasized the aspirational aspects of who we were instead of the natural tendency to create factions. So the framers did something different. It was not the separation of powers. I mean, this kills me when we take credit for the separation of powers. It's embarrassing. Uh, we did not invent the separation of powers. I was once introduced by a, um, a diplomat who go unnamed uh, to a French audience saying, uh, you know, you can thank us for giving you the separation of powers. And I felt like crawling underneath my chair because all these French judges and others going, really? You know, I guess Montesquieu, what? He was a uh, passing fad. Um, it's, we didn't invent separation of powers. We just made it better. That's what we do as Americans. We, we may not invent things, but we tend to make them better. And we certainly did that with the separation of powers. What we did differently was that we created a system designed to bring factions out in the open. Instead of ignoring them, we bring them to the surface so they can be addressed. That's why instead of exploding in the streets of Paris, in our system, these factional pressures implode, and they implode in Congress. And that's what makes it so dangerous when you see authority being siphoned out of Congress. That is the very thumping heart of the Madisonian system. There are myriad views on how monetary policy ought to be conducted. Should monetary authorities have wide latitude to meet their targets, or should their activities be strictly limited by rules? George Tavlis is a member of the Monetary Policy Council at the Bank of Greece. He spoke at the Cato Institute's Monetary Conference in November. Should monetary policy be based on rules, or should it be based on discretion? This question has been at the heart of an ongoing debate between John Taylor and the former Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke. Bernanke favors what he calls constrained discretion, under which the implementation of monetary policy should be left to the judgment of the policymakers. In his view, what is important for effective policymaking is to set goals, such as targets for the inflation rate and the unemployment rate. The rest of policymaking should consist of executing whatever the policymakers think needs to be done with a policy interest rate to achieve the goals. There's no need to articulate a decision rule or a strategy for the policy interest rate. Taylor has a very different view. Under the famous rule that bears John Taylor's name, the policy rate would respond to deviations of observed inflation from the target inflation rate and to deviations of observed GDP from potential GDP, that is, the output gap. The rule prescribes that the policy rate should be raised when inflation is above target or when output is above potential. Taylor believes that a major advantage of his rule is that it makes monetary policy transparent and predictable. The better that people can predict the way the monetary authorities will act, the better they can plan their investment and consumption decisions, 
and the more likely they will act the way the monetary authorities desire them to act. Taylor also believes that the Fed's failure to follow a Taylor rule from the period during 2003 to 2006 led to overly low interest rates and financial market bubbles culminating in the 2007 and 8 financial crisis. In his view, if the Fed had followed a Taylor rule in the years leading up to 2007, there would not have been a financial crisis. And so we have two very distinguished economists with two very different views about how monetary policy should be conducted. One of these economists, Ben Bernanke, says, let the monetary authorities be free to achieve their goals the way they see fit. The other, John Taylor, says, don't give those authorities too much freedom. Bind them by rules, otherwise they can create problems. The debate between rules versus discretion on monetary policy is an old one. It goes back at least to the 1930s when a group of University of Chicago economists led by Henry Simons proposed that the monetary authority should be bound by a rule that aims to achieve price level stability. For many years, that debate was largely confined to the academic community. It spilled over from the academic community to the policy arena in 1958 when Milton Friedman first proposed a money supply rule to a congressional committee. During the 1950s and 60s, Friedman spearheaded the renewed interest in the subject of monetary policy against the then ruling Keynesian orthodoxy, which had downplayed the role of monetary policy in the economy. It was Friedman's contributions that helped underpin the shift away by many central banks during the 1980s and 90s from a highly discretionary monetary policy to a policy with a more medium systematic orientation aimed at controlling inflation. Friedman's contributions have had a considerable influence on the policy strategy of the European Central Bank, including the ECB's main policy objective, which is price stability in the medium term. But almost 60 years have passed since Friedman first proposed his money supply rule. In today's world, would Friedman support Bernanke's position or Taylor's position? This question, what would Milton Friedman do now, remains highly relevant. During the past few years, the question has been the focus of articles in the media, including the Washington Post and The Economist, both of which published articles with that very title. The answer to the question, however, is not straightforward, because it depends on which Milton Friedman one is considering. Once upon a time, there was a Keynesian Milton Friedman. His transformation from a Keynesian to a monetarist contains lessons for the debate between Bernanke and Taylor. Here's how that transformation came about. Friedman began teaching at the University of Chicago in 1946. At that time, he favored using fiscal policy, not monetary policy, to stabilize output at full employment. He thought that the way to combat inflation was by raising tax rates, not by controlling the money supply, he thought that open market operations are ineffective and should be abolished. In short, Milton Friedman believed in the Keynesian religion. Then came his collaboration with Anna Schwartz, who during the 1940s had been like Friedman, the Keynesian. In 1948, they began working on their book, A Monetary History of the United States, which is now considered to be, along with Keynes's general theory, one of the two most influential books that were published in economics during the 20th century. They estimated that the book would take three years to complete. It took 20 years. 
and put them both through an intellectual odyssey as the evidence they accumulated and evaluated changed the views that they had held at the beginning of their odyssey and also changed the views of the academics profession and the economics profession in general. What was this evidence that created a revolution in economic policy thinking? Basically, it consisted of two parts. A part that dealt with the role of money in the economy over long periods of time, and a part that dealt with the role of money over short periods of time, that is, within the business cycle. Over the long term, they found that monetary policy plays no role in influencing economic growth, which depended on real factors, such as the growth of the labor supply and the growth of capital. Yet they also found that over the long run, the money supply was the main determinant of inflation. The message from the long run data was clear. To control inflation, the authorities need to control money growth. In the short run, however, things are very different. Monetary policy, they found, can be highly disruptive. The prime example of monetary policy's disruptive powers was the Great Depression of 1929 to 1933. Contradicting the received wisdom at the time they wrote, which held that money was just a passive player in the Great Depression, Friedman and Schwartz showed that the Great Depression was, in their words, a tragic testimonial to the powers of monetary forces. How could monetary forces wreak havoc on the economy? The answer provided by Friedman and Schwartz was very unsettling. It had to do with the personal attributes of the monetary authorities. Friedman and Schwartz showed that the Federal Reserve officials during the Great Depression, who allowed the money supply to collapse by one-third and stood by while one-third of the nation's banks closed their doors, were incompetent and misunderstood the effects of monetary policy on the economy. Beyond that, Friedman and Schwartz conjectured that even competent monetary authorities could become subjected to political pressures and misled by fads in economic thinking. These findings underpin Friedman's famous policy proposal that the money supply should increase annually within a range of 3 to 5% a year in order to keep inflation under control and also to take monetary policy implementation out of the hands of potentially incompetent policymakers Friedman never believed that his money supply rule would be a magic bullet. He realized it wouldn't eliminate mild economic fluctuations. But it would almost certainly rule out, he believed, the major fluctuations that had been caused by policy mistakes in the past. What then would Friedman have thought about a Taylor rule? During his lifetime, he expressed two concerns about such rules. First, because the Taylor rule is a feedback rule that is under the rule, the policy authorities respond to the present state of the economy as reflected in output and inflation. It's vulnerable to what Friedman considered to be the destabilizing effects of long and variable lags in monetary policy. These lags mean that countercyclical policy, even if determined under a feedback rule, can be a source of shocks to an economy since, for example, the effects of a policy tightening taken to reduce output and constrained inflation in the present might not kick in until the future contractionary phases of the cycle amplifying the contraction. Second, feedback rules that depend on such concepts as potential output depend on concepts which are unobservable. And since they're unobservable, it can be difficult for policymakers to form a consensus about their values. 
Therefore, they introduce an element of judgment or discretion into, into policy making. Nevertheless, both the Taylor rule and the Friedman money supply rule share several important characteristics. Both rules have been formulated so that they're transparent and easy to understand. By limiting the amount of discretion in policy making, both rules limit the potential for political interference in, in policy making. Both rules draw a clear separation of monetary policy from fiscal policy, further limiting the potential for political interference. Both rules place price stability at the heart of monetary policy. And crucially, both rules focus on the need to reduce both policy uncertainty and the possibility of repeating the policy mistakes of the past, including the, those that led to the Great Depression of the 1930s and those that led to the high inflation, high unemployment decay of the 1970s. For those of you who may not recognize the name, Arthur Burns was once a very famous and highly regarded economist. During the 1950s, Burns had been chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors in the Eisenhower administration. He had been president of the National Bureau of Economic Research, and he had been president of the American Economic Association. Burns was also Milton Friedman's teacher in the 1930s. Friedman considered Burns to be the teacher who most influenced his own thinking. Burns, however, was also Federal Reserve Chairman from 1970 to 1978, a period marked by very high inflation and very high unemployment. This highly regarded economist became subjected to political pressures and to fads from Keynesian thinking about the ineffectiveness of monetary policy. As a result, he mismanaged monetary policy and therefore the economy, confirming one of Friedman's concerns about discretion. At the time that Friedman first proposed his money supply rule, he made it clear the rule was not set in stone. He was open to other rules that could become more suitable should our understanding of the economy be improved. During his later years, he acknowledged that our understanding of the economy had indeed improved and that he had been favorably impressed with the Fed's performance during the period from the mid-1980s to the late 1990s. During that period, John Taylor and others have shown that the Taylor rule accurately captured movements in the Fed's policy rate. In other words, policy was being conducted as if the Fed had been following a Taylor rule. For the reasons, therefore, that I just mentioned, I believe that Friedman would have become very sympathetic toward a Taylor rule. He would have regarded the Taylor rule's focus on reducing both policy uncertainty and the policy mistakes of the past as a close relative of his money supply rule. Is our criminal justice system in need of an overhaul? Judge Alex Kaczynski of the Ninth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals discussed some of the problems of getting to justice in U.S. courts. He presented his side of the debate at the Cato Institute in November. We have um, um, now quite a bit of scientific research that casts doubt on various aspects of the trial process, things that we always took for granted, the uh, perception and memory of witnesses. 
uh, and a variety of other uh, processes we use during the trials. Let me, I don't have time for everything, but let me just focus on, on um, scientific evidence. We have, um, and we take for granted that somebody in a lab coat comes and uh, gives a report and says this is the case, uh, that, that, that is the truth, that is the reality. But much of what the science that goes on in the courtroom is not tested by Darbot standards. Uh, that Darbot is the case that Supreme Court has told us uh, should be employed when uh, admitting, um, uh, deciding whether to admit scientific evidence in, uh, in civil cases. Uh, much of what we accept in criminal cases doesn't get put to that test. We just sort of assume it's, uh, it's valid. In fact, when various kinds of uh, scientific evidence is put to the test, when there actually is a known sample and an unknown sample, and they test how, quick, how often the, uh, the experts get it right, there are tremendous uh, error rates. Spectrographic voice identification worse than useless, handwriting 40%, bite marks. Uh, worse than useless. Even fingerprint, which has been thought to be the gold standard for decades, they said, well, you know, they get the fingerprint, well, then they got you dead to rights. Well, it turns out even fingerprint, even rolled prints, when they, when they actually sort of test, um, uh, not, not latent prints that are left at the scene, but ones that when they actually roll them and to make sure they're perfect, both samples are perfect, uh, there's a significant, a non-trivial uh, error rate uh, that's shown, uh, that, that shows up. The, the, the uh, poster child case of this is when the FBI a few years back announced a 100% match to fingerprints found in a bag linked to the 2004 Madrid bombings. And they said the guys whose fingerprint it was was um, uh, Brandon Mayfield, an Oregon attorney. Well, it turns out that two weeks later, the Spanish investigators identified a different person with 100% match of fingerprints. And the FBI had to go back and, and uh, apologize to Mayfield uh, for having uh, branded him an international criminal. Some of the stuff, some of the stuff, well, at least Mayfield got an apology. Not everybody gets an apology. Um, the, some of the stuff that gets admitted in our criminal trials, because again, it doesn't have to pass Darbert standard. There's no validation necessary. Somebody gets up and says, I'm an expert in how fire spread. Well, uh, Cameron Todd Willingham was charged with uh, setting fire to his, uh, this is down in Texas, uh, setting fire uh, to his um, uh, house and um, his three children were killed and they had a uh, expert, a so-called expert come uh, and testify that the fire had to have had a, an accelerant, which I mean uh, gasoline or, or uh, kerosene, otherwise it would have burned in a different way. Well, it turns out it's nonsense. It turns out that that technique, which was then widely used uh, by people who were not experts, uh, by people who were firefighters, and they drew certain conclusions on a, on, based on their experience, not on scientific research, uh, but uh, there were many cases where testimony like this were given. Uh, in Mayfield's case, um, uh, the, he lost the race. Uh, to try to debunk the evidence. He was executed in, in 2004, almost certainly uh, wrongfully executed. Um, uh, studies done afterwards have unanimously said that the testimony in his case, the stuff that actually hung him, was just complete uh, voodoo science. Uh, now, that is the deals with the area of uh, simply uh, mistaken or uh, 
confused uh, uh, forensic scientist. One of the big problems is that many forensic officers, uh, many officers that do uh, forensic work for the police, view themselves as part of the prosecution team. They're not out there to determine in their minds to determine a, uh, a just result or the correct result. They are there to help build the prosecution's case. And you say, well, what about DNA? At least we're safe with DNA. My word, if we get a DNA match, at least we know that that is safe. Well, it's only as safe as the people who handle the DNA, as safe as they are honest, competent, and willing to uh, be objective. Uh, there are lots of examples of this. I just have to list the latest, where the San Francisco Police Department is facing accusations that the DNA crime lab technicians were filling the gaps for poor quality, incomplete genetic evidence, and passing them off as definitive test results in state's offender tracking database. Now, right now, this is just an accusation, although there seems to be quite a bit of substance to it. But there are lots of instances, including uh, involving the FBI, where the DNA, they simply muffed the DNA analysis because nobody uh, either didn't pay attention or rounded the results in a way as to favor the, favor the prosecution. There is an Inspector General report uh, involving the FBI where they looked at hair sample matches. Once thought to be, uh, you know, they said, oh, well, the hair came from somebody's head. That must be it. Well, it turns out that they now admit, the FBI, supposed to stand the standard for the entire country, that in 95% of the 268 trials that they have reviewed so far, um, they overstated the match. They either lied or overstated the match. Uh, uh, including 32 in death penalty cases. And they are not done looking at it, but in 95% of the cases, they uh, took the side of the prosecution rather than coming up with an objective, um, uh, an objective standard. They specifically focused on an examiner by the name of Michael Malone, uh, whose conduct was uh, said to be particularly problematic. And um, uh, they admit that, but for Malone's testimony, one defendant would not have been death eligible, would not have been convicted of a death eligible offense, and three other prisoners who depended on Cologne's, uh, Malone's conviction have already been exonerated, and they served, each spent more than 20 years in prison. We control far less about our world than we might like to believe. To Matt Ridley, that's often a very good thing. In his new book, The Evolution of Everything, he discusses how ideas emerge in religion, technology, government, leadership, money, and our own minds. He spoke at the Cato Institute in November. Uh, as I like to put it, we've trebled our income, uh, hit reduced child mortality by two-thirds, increased lifespan by a third uh, in, in my lifetime, and it wasn't all my doing. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's, um, it takes a lot of explaining. We should get our minds around why that happened, why it happened in this generation, why, why it's possible for it to happen to human beings at all and not to rabbits and rocks. Uh, and, um, of course, the answer is innovation. Uh, but then the question becomes where does innovation comes from, 
uh, and that's sort of what this book takes further. It explores the idea. Uh, and what I've done is, is uh, drill down into the idea that innovation comes from combination and recombination of existing ideas. That's a very similar process to the combination and recombination of genes, uh, which produces the raw material for biological evolution. Uh, but in biological evolution, you then have a process of selection, uh, where the environment selects some of the combinations over some of the other combinations. And is that happening in human society? Well, of course it is, because some of the combinations that uh, inventors come up with don't get accepted, and others do. So clearly you've got a process of selection going on. So the closer you look at the way uh, innovation works uh, to change society, uh, the, the more it looks like biological evolution. So I wanted to see how far I could take that idea, whether I could uh, uh, turn everything uh, onto a Procrustean bed of Darwinism. Uh, and that's what this book is trying to do. And it's kind of, I've been working up to this uh, all my life in a way. And um, uh, John Tierney, introducing me yesterday, said, um, well, now you've written a book called The Evolution of Everything. There's nothing left to write about. Uh, um, unless I can find a book to write about called The Evolution of a Few Things I Forgot to Mention, which is possible. Um, I think the Darwin's idea of evolution through natural selection is one of the great ideas uh, that human beings have ever come up with. It's, uh, it's, a, uh, it's, it's a difficult idea to get, out, get your head around, uh, and it's counterintuitive. Um, and that is to say, particularly when we look at the natural world, still to this day, we see design, we see purpose, we see function. You can't look at the structure of the human eye and not uh, conclude that it was designed for seeing. Its job is to do seeing. Uh, and yet Darwin comes along and says, that may be true in the sense that its form is fitted to its function, but that doesn't mean that someone had a plan to make something for seeing. It, it got that way spontaneously and without ever having a goal in mind. Uh, and that's the sort of the, 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 the difficult bit about um, uh, natural selection that people to this day find very difficult about, about biological evolution. So what I'm kind of arguing is that the same is likely to be true of society because we can see evolution happening in, in human society. And therefore, when we find really well-functioning human institutions or human technologies, we should consider the possibility that they have emerged without a plan uh, in a bottom-up way rather than through top-down command and control uh, without someone really uh, being in charge of them. And therefore that Darwin's version of evolution by natural selection in genetic systems is the special theory of evolution, rather like uh, special relativity was the special theory of, of relativity, uh, and that there's a general theory of evolution that we should, we should look at that evolution happens everywhere, that, it is, uh, that, that what happens in human society is much more incremental, much more gradual than we tend to assume. It doesn't, society doesn't change in great big jumps. It tends to, when you look at it closely, be a case of moving to the adjacent possible. You, you, you take one step and then you move to the next step. It's much more gradual than we thought. It shows descent with modification, so you can trace the family tree of of an idea or, or technology um, from its, its ancestors, uh, just as you can with a, a, a biological creature. 
And there's something inexorable about it. It, it sort of moves forward whether we like it to or not. And you can't speed it up and you can't slow it down. I mean, we've known about Moore's law for 40, 50 years now, and yet Moore's law is still working. It's still going at the same speed. The fact that we know about it doesn't enable us to cheat it and to, to jump ahead of Moore's law. Um, that's the sort of thing that I'm, I'm, I'm talking about. And of course, crucially, if you're going to have an evolutionary system, there must be an element of trial and error. Uh, in other words, uh, in biological evolution, there has to be mutation and selection uh, in which the bad, uh, bad combinations of genes get rejected and the good ones get accepted. Uh, and that must be the case in uh, societal change if you're going to have an evolutionary change. So the question is, do we see trial and error? Do we see um, uh, human beings, when they're trying to change a technology or, or an or a institution or a system, uh, trying different ideas, some of which succeed and some of which don't? Uh, and I would argue that, yes, we do. Uh, that the closer you look at how things change in human society, the more trial and error you find. Just a little example, the designs of aeroplanes. In the first uh, few decades of aeroplanes, there's an ex a ferment of experimentation in, in, in how you design the tailplane or the wings, how many wings you have, whether you have the propeller at the front or the back. You know, There's all sorts of different designs which, which are tried, some of which survive and some of which don't. And, of course, the corollary of this is that we're not recognizing this enough. We're not recognizing that evolution is uh, the, the way which society changes. Uh, we are creationists. And um, there are, uh, you know, I, Don Boudreau, for example, makes this point very clearly in, in terms of economics, that uh, we, we tend to believe that someone has designed uh, an outcome when actually it's emerged um, uh, within society. Now, I might be being a little bit Procrustean here. Uh, Procrustes, as you remember, stretched his guests so they fitted the bed um, that he made them stay on. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it's certainly true that I'm going to have to concede at certain points that there are top-down things in the world. There are um, individuals who matter, who make a difference in history. Um, it's not always ordinary people interacting among each other who bubble up ideas. Um, but I think that we have erred on the side of thinking that things are more top-down than they are. So just to give you some sort of thoughts to get you... Some, some, I mean, the book is full of anecdotes of, of, of things that have changed in an evolutionary way in human society. Um, uh, just to give you some examples, music. Take the take music. Music is always changing. You know, the, every generation has different genres of music in different parts of the world, in different places. But there's a con continual evolution of music, and it's pretty gradual when you when you think about it. Of course, there are sort of people who get called revolutionaries in music, but when you look at it, they're kind of building on what came before. You know, the Beatles is building on it. Elvis Presley is building on. Uh, blues and rock or whatever. Uh, and you can also see the cross-fertilization that is characteristic of an e evolutionary system where two types of music come together and, and um, uh, swap ideas and come up with, with a third. Uh, but you can see dissent with modification in music very clearly. Gods. Gods are another thing that evolve. Uh, in the um, uh, Bronze Age, gods were vengeful and petty tyrants who got very upset if you offended them and things like that. And uh, you know, they had really rather mundane uh, concerns in their lives. Um, now they're disembodied spirits of benevolence. Um, 
and there tends to be only one of them. Uh, that's a change that you can see gradually coming through history at different times and in different places. Uh, and I have a, a chapter on the evolution of religion, which is guaranteed to offend um, quite a lot of people. Um, but then there's something to offend everyone in pretty well every chapter in, in the book. Government, for example. Um, I, I like to say about this book that um, uh, my right-wing friends won't like what I say about God and my left-wing friends won't like what I say about government. So uh, I'm an equal opportunity offender. Um, governments, essentially, you can trace the history of governments pretty clearly as a gradual evolutionary thing. They evolve out of protection rackets. Government starts as somebody asserting a monopoly of violence on society, uh, essentially saying, look, instead of us all fighting each other, I'm going to be the one with the weapons and the rest of you are not. Uh, and that's all right because there'll be peace because I will have all the weapons. And that's essentially where governments come from. And you can see, I mean, I, give, I tell a story in, in the book, a wonderful um, bit of work by David Scarbeck on the emergence of uh, spontaneous governance in prison gangs, that prison gangs essentially are about uh, imposing monopoly of violence uh, within a prison and thereby suppressing violence. And it's the same phenomenon. It's, it's a form of government evolving. Um, so it's happening even today. But of course, governments move on and become very different things, and they start uh, do, pr providing other services than just monopoly of violence. Uh, uh, and uh, you know, eventually, they come up with welfare states and so on. So, so it, 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 the, the history of government is a very evolutionary history. Cities, cities evolve very clearly. Uh, they, there, there are rules about what a city looks like at a certain stage, at a certain size and a certain stage of development. Uh, these rules are not written down. They're not laws. They're not, you, know, you don't have to obey them, but it turns out that cities do obey them. There are wonderful regularities about this. Jeffrey West has particularly written well about this. And, of course, what these things are, I would argue, are phenomena that are the product of human action but not the product of human design. And that, of course, is a famous quote from the 18th century Scottish philosopher Adam Ferguson, um, who, who said there's a whole category of things out there that are not man-made, man-designed objects, like you know this uh, wooden thing, um, uh, and they're not natural objects either. Uh, they are somewhere in between. They're man-made in the sense that uh, you know clearly human beings were involved in their creation, uh, and yet there's no sense in which they were designed, uh, they were planned. The clearest example of that, I think, is the English language. When you think about it, the English language is clearly man-made. It's not a natural phenomenon. Uh, and yet it is, uh, and it's full of rules, it's full of structure, it's full of order. Uh, it's extremely complex. It's, it's got a beautiful fit between form and function. Uh, it's as complex as a rainforest in terms of each word having its place in the, in the vocabulary, just like each species has its place in a rainforest. Uh, and yet it's ridiculous to say that it was designed by anyone or that it's run by anyone. Uh, uh, there is no chief executive of the English language, thank goodness. Uh, there is no central committee. Um, uh, uh, there is no constitution of the English language. And it's full of rules that we all obey, but we don't even know half the time. We know some of the rules of the English language, but a lot of them uh, have emerged spontaneously. So, for example, there's a rule that... Uh, in English, you shorten words if you're going to use them frequently. So most of the frequently used words in English language are short. 
Um, and also, there's another rule that uh, short, frequently used words don't change their meanings, whereas long, infrequently words can change their meanings. These are the kinds of rules you pick up if you study English closely, uh, but we're all kind of a, we're all not really aware of them, and yet we're obeying them. Uh, and there's no Supreme Court to tell us that we have to obey these rules, and yet we do. In the book, I go back 2,000 years to try and find the origin of the first person who really sees this clearly, and I, I fasten on Lucretius, uh, the Roman poet uh, who was uh, hymning the virtues of Epicurus and the Epicurean philosophy, uh, and who died in the middle of writing his only poem, uh, as far as we can tell, because it ends rather abruptly. Um, uh, uh, the poem is called De Rerum Natura, On the Nature of Things, uh, and I think it's a it's a fascinating poem. It had an enormous influence on, on later history, particularly on Thomas Jefferson, had five different copies of it in his library, uh, Spinoza, um, uh, uh, Voltaire, all these kind of people were hugely influenced by, by Lucretius de Rerum Natura. The poem disappeared for uh, about 12 centuries uh, because the Christian church didn't like it, because it's a very uh, atheistic poem. It says there's no such thing as gods or spirits, uh, and it's unbelievably modern in some ways, because what he says is that the world consists of atoms and voids. Nothing else. There's just atoms and voids. There's no spirits. There's no essences. There's no... Uh, and, and, and a living creature is made of atoms and voids just as a non-living creature is atoms and voids. It's just they're different combinations of atoms and voids. Now, we know that's true. How he knew that 2,000 years ago, it, it, it almost boggles the mind to, to understand. Uh, but, of course, it's a very evolutionary view because it's about recombining. It's about recombining things. And in, in places, he gets terribly close to sounding like... He sounds, he sounds like Charles Darwin in places. He also sounds like Richard Dawkins in places. Um, so, um, so I use little quotes from Lucretius to, to make the point that this isn't a new idea throughout the book. Uh, but jump forward to 1759, the year in which... Adam Smith publishes uh, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, uh, which is a century, exactly a century before Charles Darwin publishes The Origin of Species. Uh, and you find the same sort of idea in that book. Theory of Moral Sentiments is a very radical book, a very subversive book, uh, but a very difficult to understand book. It's rather densely written. But what he's saying in that book is that morality emerges from the way we interact with each other as ordinary people. It doesn't emerge from priests telling us what to do. We don't need to be told what's right and wrong. We work it out for ourselves. We calibrate our behavior according to how people react to us. Uh, if we go around killing people and people lock us up for doing it, we learn that that's a bad thing to do. Uh, uh, and so essentially you can have different versions of morality in different society according to how people are are getting feedback for their behavior, that essentially we decide among ourselves what's right and what's wrong. And of course, this is a terribly subversive thing to say in the 18th century, because uh, you're supposed to think that if it wasn't for priests telling you what was right and wrong, nobody would know what was right and wrong. Um, one consequence of this way of looking at society is that uh, it's very skeptical of the great man theory um, of history. And the great man theory of history is that, that history is is caused by great men rather than great men are caused by history. Um, and 
the French Enlightenment was particularly resistant to this idea uh, and said we've spent far too much time thinking that Julius Caesar or someone w was important. Actually, we should look at um, uh, the, 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 the what, what ordinary people are doing uh, and the, the fact that great men are taking the credit, uh, as it were. Uh, and so if you look up in the Encyclopédie, the uh, great manifesto of the French Enlightenment written by Diderot and d'Alembert, um, you find there are no biographical entries at all. They went that far. They said, let's, let's just not put any... So if you want to read Isaac Newton's biography in that book, you have to look up the entry under Woolstrop, which is the village he was born in, in, in Lincolnshire. Um, and yet it's clear that, you know, after the 20th century, it's pretty hard to believe that human beings, individual human beings, can't change history. Clearly there can be huge top-down influences on history from individuals. We have Mao, we have Stalin, we have Hitler and others to, to show us that. And to some extent we have Churchill on the other side, probably the only politician in Britain who, would, who wouldn't have done a deal with Hitler. Had anyone else got into power, it might have, it might have come out differently. But I think it's true, as Lord Acton said, that great men are usually bad men. Um, uh, that uh, it's much easier to take history by the scruff of the neck and change it in a different direction, in a bad direction, than in a good direction. And if, there's, if, if I'm skeptical of the great man theory of history in, in history, although I admit they, they do exist, even more so when it comes to technology. Thomas Edison invented the light bulb in the 1870s, so did 22 other people in the same decade, independently. Um, in Britain, we give the credit to Joseph Swan. He came from the town I come from, Newcastle. So we're very firm in Newcastle that Edison is a fraud and Joseph Swan deserves all the credit. They actually ended up sort of going into business together, uh, uh, but um, Edison was the better businessman. In Russia, they say it was Lodigin who invented the light bulb, and it's nonsense, all this Edison nonsense, you know, etc. So, And, of course, everybody's right. Actually, the point was the light bulb was a ripe idea by the 1870s. It was the next adjacent possible step to take. The technology was all in place to recombine it and produce the idea of a light bulb. And it's inconceivable that if uh, Edison hadn't existed... Uh, we wouldn't have light bulbs. You know, it was the, 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 you know, the vacuum, the glowing filament, the, the glass uh, case. These are all things that had to come together around then. Uh, and that's true of almost every invention you can think of. Think of the search engine, one of the great innovations of my lifetime. I use it every day. Uh, uh, and as important to my generation as the steam engine was to the um, uh, 18th century. Uh, uh, and yet, if... Larry Page had never met Sergey Brin. Do we think we'd not have search engines now? No, of course we would. In fact, there were about 20 search engines on the market when Google was founded in 1994. It's just that Google came up with the best one and managed to sweep, sweep the pool. Um, and this is true, of course, of scientific discovery too. Uh, Charles Darwin hit on the idea of evolution and then so did Alfred Russell Wallace a few years later. And it was because Wallace was about to scoop him that Darwin rushed into print. Um, even Einstein, who tends to stand out as being a unique genius who saw things that nobody else did, uh, was actually someone who, uh, had, he not ex had, had Einstein fallen under a tram uh, in Switzerland um, before he got to special relativity, Hendrik Lorentz would have come up with special relativity. As Kevin 
Kelly uh, documents in his book, What Technology Wants, we know of six different inventors of the thermometer, three of the hypodermic needle, four of vaccination, four of decimal fractions, five of the electric telegraph, four of photography, three of logarithms, five of the steamboat, six of the electric uh, railroad. Now, I'm not saying scientists and inventors don't matter. Clearly, they do. You, clearly, you have to have you know, the right conditions for people to come up with this kind of thing and the right conditions for Edison to turn a, make a business out of them and so on. But I am saying that that there's, there's an inexorable, inevitable, evolutionary nature to this. And the more you look at innovation, the more what really counts is, is ordinary people uh, interacting, not one or two brilliant geniuses. Uh, um, uh, because of Nobel Prizes, because of patents, we tend to give one or two geniuses the credit, but actually a lot of it is, is bottom up. Uh, and this, of course, challenges the linear model that that science comes before technology, which comes before application. I don't think that's, that's true. Um, and the best example of this that we've got in front of us today is the internet. Uh, the internet is uh, clearly something that is the, the result of human action, but not of human design, um, in the sense that nobody had a plan for it, nobody is in charge of it to this day, there is no central committee, thank goodness although people keep trying to be in charge of it. Um, uh, and it doesn't originate in a couple of brilliant individuals. Sure, you can give Tim Berners-Lee or, or um, Vince Cerf or someone you know, credit for certain parts of it, but they're pretty dispensable in the sense that if they hadn't been there, someone else would have come up with these, these technologies. And in fact, what, the, the closer you look, uh, and you certainly can't give Al Gore credit, by the way, um, uh, <laughs> And, and, and yes, it came out of government to some extent, but it also came out of industry, and actually it didn't. It came out of ordinary people on networks. And it's pretty inconceivable that in the, uh, the, at the time when it appeared, the, the networking of computers because of communication technology would not have happened somehow. Now available as a fully unabridged audiobook, The Libertarian Mind by the Cato Institute's Executive Vice President David Bowes is the best available guide to the history, ideas, and growth of libertarianism and is the ultimate resource for the current burgeoning libertarian movement. Download your copy today at audible.com, amazon.com, or at iTunes. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.